Welcome to the second part of our 2019 Year in Review. I'm your host, Patty Murphy, and this is the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. This episode picks up with Leadership Under Fire founder and president Jason Bresler and FDNY senior firefighter James McNamara. In the previous episode, we discussed the LUF team's accomplishments and focused efforts during 2019. Now, we'll dive deeper into some of the lessons Jason and Jim learned firsthand during the year that impacted their views on human performance and leadership. Let's get started. So switching gears. Sure. From a meta-knowledge perspective, let's see if we can get this down. Yeah. (laughs) So what did you think you knew about that you largely did but learned more about? Okay, I'll take that on. And (laughs) this is something I'll probably share an answer uh, with Jason on. The impacts of of operating uh, blacked out in a face piece. As a firefighter, you don't think much about that, but it's profound what happens to us when we're blacked out. Take a training scenario. And and we could operate on on a sunny and 75-degree day in May and go into a training facility and if we could measure you up at the time. And again, you go blacked out and certain things are going to start happening to you. Heart rate, you're going to start pushing yourself towards the right side of the curve. And the understanding of what's happening there, again, as a species, our primary data inputs are visual as as opposed to, say, a rat, which is olfactory. And so when you take that away... You know, what, what is the brain naturally going to think? We're, we're geared, and I shouldn't say brain because we're all one connected system, something that Fader has talked about. Mm-hmm. But what what's going to happen, you're going to push people right. And then think about what happens in fire operations, right? The three of us are sitting in a firehouse kitchen. The tones go off, reported building fire. What happens in the four minutes when we arrive? Where are we on the curve then? We try to piece this puzzle together. And now we're going to go to the pinnacle of fire operations. We're going to mask up and either uh, push in or conduct a search. That final act there probably pushes our people significantly to the right on the curve. And we it's something that ultimately we'd love to do a formalized study on. But just some anecdotal work shows that it's extraordinary. And to think about it also draw a corollary with this. If if you took, and Jason, you're in command of a unit now, if you took your individual unit and and took and took an Excel spreadsheet and said, well, how many, how much time have your firefighters spent operating blacked out at fires and emergencies? How much time have they spent, you know, blacked out in training scenarios? We would all probably be very surprised at how little we do it. We don't appreciate the impacts of it. Uh, and again, moving forward, it, it's it's imperative that we understand why this is pushing us to the right. And then ultimately, this is something that we can address. But just simply broaching that subject, the simple act of being blacked out, has significant impacts upon us as human beings. What about you? Memory. Mm-hmm. When, when Jimmy and I and, and a few others in, involved with the operational research going back a, a number of years now, decided that we wanted to gain a better understanding of just how our folks were being impacted by operational stress. We knew we wanted to look at something that uh, would, wouldn't be the least bit in, intrusive and is largely something that we already do to begin with. And we thought, well, 
We go to flights, spend a lot of time on the radio. We, we listen attentively to the radio. We come back, we often listen to the transmissions afterwards. Much of our narrative that we then have around that, specifically that fire is, is connected to the radio traffic. When we partnered with Janet Metcalf, Dr. Janet Metcalf, to do this study, I think we all hypothesized that memory would be poor, particularly after fires or emergencies of relatively high high stress. And what we found was that and more to the extent that virtually every fire and emergency that, that our folks operated at, their memory afterwards was far from, from, from accurate. Far probably being in, in an understatement. Would you agree? Would you agree, John? Sure. And, and I think to add on to that, when you first looked at this, and or if you show it to someone, they say, well, why is it so bad, the recall numbers? Well, you have to say, no, it's not that it's bad. That's what it is. When you're being impacted by operational stress, and particularly the hippocampus, right, there are profound values. You talk, we talked about you know, Fabiano who's sitting at a, at, a, at a chess table and the values that he's generating. The, the impacts upon us are probably far more profound than we could really imagine. And we probably generate cumulative stress values uh, equal to that or greater than the team of teams. Because when you talk about stresses, it's not just the individual package. Ultimately, you have to talk about it in a cumulative sense. You talk about fatigue. You, know, you talk about uh, temperatures. I mean, what are impacts, not just in core temperatures, impacts in, in, in increases in marine temperature. And you go, you go around the horn, and the, the cumulative force load on our firefighters is, is probably extraordinary. But we have to start to understand these things. When we did this, I, I, when the results came out, I kind of envisioned, like, what would a, an old-timer have told me years ago about this study? And they said, well, kid, you know, uh, turn the radio up louder and listen harder. Well, you can't do that. <laughs> right? sure. and that. And that's part of... of not so much changing the, the, the narrative, but providing folks with a better understanding of this. And when we start understanding not the firefighter, but the human being inside that gear, then we start to open up the doors of understanding. And that's a whole new ballgame, right? This, this hasn't been done, and especially the work on humans. Again, Dr. Metcalf talks about this all the time, about the gaps, right? There's tremendous amounts of, of, of study that's been done on, on rats and, and, and other animals. Where are the studies on human beings, especially on human beings in real situations of real consequence? That's a real game changer. Putting a firefighter on a treadmill is not like putting a firefighter at the door pushing down a hallway. And that's the importance of this, of, of this work. Uh, this is real stuff and how we're really being implicated. As a leader, the team leader for Leadership Under Fire, I, I, I work hard sometimes to uh, not oversell what, what it is we're doing or the impact that we're having. Because at the end of the day, we're just a group of quiet professionals who all have a full-time profession, fire, military, law enforcement, sport, et cetera. And I think first and foremost, we're just trying to be better versions of our of ourselves. But collectively now we're, we're doing some things, both as a team and then within the New York City Fire Department and some organizations here on the horizon to get a better sense of just how we're impacted physiologically, psychologically, and cognitively at, at these events and during these high-risk high endeavors. And the memory, we hypothesized it would be, would be poor, and we found on the back end at the conclusion of the first study, which is significant. I mean, you know, credit to, to Jimmy having helped to author a, a paper in Hippocampus Journal with Dr. Metcalf is that our, our memory is actually even worse 
that we had anticipated, which on the surface looks bad. It is what it is. I think more importantly, it's it's the first data that not just offers a, a qualitative sense of how we're being impacted, but also quantitative. And I, I think that uh, huge accomplishment. I mean, that we were able to to partner with the folks that we did, that our folks, that the trust factor was there, mm-hmm. right? The folks were willing to reflect that the larger goal here is to humanize the narrative. And it was a really great, a really great starting point. I'm super excited about what, what follows. We could spend a lot of time talking on all of these ideas that you built upon this year. But I want to ask, what did you think you knew going into 2019 that in retrospect you learned you didn't know or that you changed your mind about? Sure. When we began this journey, and it literally is a journey, when you thought about the impacts of operational stress, you thought there was uniformity. You thought that, you know, you looked at Grossman's uh, stress chart and you think that everybody's going to be impacted in the same way. And that's just absolutely not true. It was really Sapolsky who broached this concept of variability, that each and every one of us are very different. Perfect example of three folks sitting right here, right? Different age groups, different life experiences. And the point is people will be impacted in different ways. Your life experience plays into it, even your your hormones and, and all of that biology coming with you. And the point to understand is initially when you look at this stuff, you think, well, everyone's going to be impacted in the same way. It's not. We have to understand that when we look at firefighters, we often look at them and, and they look invincible. The point is, if you strip down all of that gear, there is a, a human being inside all of that gear with all of the inherent strengths and weaknesses that come with being human. And the better we understand the human being and understand how they're impacted, the better we'll be. You think back again, and I was thinking about this uh, the other day, go back to the great ones all the time. The great ones, and like the Vidge and his crew in Rescue 2, those guys worked together for years. They instinctively knew everything about each other. They also knew what their strengths and weaknesses were as individually and as a unit. Having that understanding, in those days, guys didn't rush to, to get promoted. They built that unit cohesion, that spree de corps, but they understood the capacities of each other. It becomes particularly difficult if you're in a leadership capacity as a company officer or even that first arriving chief to understand the capacity of all of your, uh, your firefighters. When we were down at the farm, uh, I took uh, Coleman Preston's advice, excuse me, to ask a question. And the first question I asked of, of the leaders was, how well do you know and how well do you understand the young men and women in your charge? And the larger point is, in order to lead people, in order to train people, in order to build them, you have to understand them deeply. And by understanding the concept, the presence and the concept of variability, that allows us to, to, to treat people individually and not to lump them in and expect them to perform all the same way in the same situations. And to me, that was a, that was a, a game changer for me because uh, it, it, it opened up my thought process because I had been locked in thinking that everybody's going to be impacted it the same way and generate the same values. And that's just simply not true. If only it were that easy, right, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, as, as, a, as a guy who's going to work and, and uh, more times than now working with really, really young guys, they're super passionate about the job and want to be, want to be better, uh, just chopping at the bit to, to become good firefighters. It's incredibly challenging. 
right? Try, trying to get a sense of where their strengths and, and limitations and weaknesses are. Not so much with the tactical. Usually that's pretty apparent on the, on the surface or the technical. But, you know, behind the curtain, how they each respond to, to stress, different types of stress, un, uncertainty, et cetera. So, yeah, that's um, – and I think that's really what makes – at the end of the day, that's what makes this a leadership endeavor. Did you have another answer or just building upon that? Yeah, what, what did I think I knew going into 2019 that I've since changed my position on? And Jim Roussel told me several times over the course of, of the year – one of the hallmarks is a, of a good leader is, is that a willingness or a demonstration that he or she changed their mind R recently, you know, particularly given that we operate in such a complex world with complex people. He said, show me a leader who hasn't changed his mind recently on some position, and I'll show you a leader who's probably not living in reality. This is coming from Jim. So then I'm immediately thinking, if he's going to ask me what have I changed my mind on recently, I better have a freaking answer, right? So going into the year, you know, you had, you had Tim on recently and you talked about the biometrics and there's a number of us on the team and in the larger network that have been tracking our, our data, uh, particularly fires and emergencies now for a couple of, of years. You add in the research that we're doing with folks like Dr. Metcalf at, at Columbia. And I think one of the things that I have changed my position or, or probably more accurately developed a greater appreciation for is the fact that the physical stress has even less influence on the body than I had anticipated to the extent that Jimmy and I have this ongoing dialogue about the stress that the pump operator, the motorized, you know, the MPO, the engine company show for New York City, we call them an ECC, MPO, other parts of the country, they call them engineers. It's basically the, the guy or gal that drives the fire engine to the fire is responsible for getting water. And I think historically, We've all been guilty at times of underestimating or downplaying the amount of stress that that individual is subjected to. And the only time we're even aware of it is in instances of their role, is in instances where they were delayed in getting us water or there was a water issue. I think that uh, we're, we're learning and we'll continue to see that that individual is experiencing an inordinate amount of stress in large part because they're isolated. Mm -hmm because they're working to solve a task, though be it on the surface sometimes straightforward, under stress, un undoubtedly complex in isolated fashion. In the same way that the chief on our job and other jobs, particularly in other jobs where he doesn't have an aide, turns around, several of our chiefs have said, I, I turn around, I put everyone in the building, things start to go sideways. And I came to a fire with 55 other members of the department and, and now suddenly I feel isolated. Now, the experts, in the, in the social sciences, namely the psychology, will tell you that that isolation generates an inordinate amount of stress on the body. And I think historically, we've all been probably guilty, and certainly it wasn't it wasn't malicious, right? But but we've been guilty of maybe downplaying some roles out of the belief that well they're removed from harm, right? They're not actually in the fire building; they're not on the floor above. Therefore, they're not being impacted like other members operating. And then we're finding that that actually, in, in some cases, that isolation or, or solving a complex problem uh, individually generates every bit as much stress as those, those guys in the building, maybe even more. And I think then if you take that and apply that to other industries, law enforcement, 
I mean, an overwhelming number of departments across the United States, the police officer is driving around by himself at a time and place in America where there's an active shooter threat that rears his ugly head in a school or in a military base. The expectation is that he is going through that front door by himself. So I, I think that uh, it's so fun kind of to sit here now and say, all right, this is what we think we know. And I think that's kind of what you're, you're trying to tease out. Here's what we think we know. And, and then having the, uh, the humility <laughs> to say, well, but we recognize that we, we don't know nearly as much. I mean, we're just scratching the surface, right? We don't know nearly as much as we think we do. And next year, we'll know more. And in some instances, we'll have changed our, True. our mind about certain things. True. And you talk about going and, and gaining that institutional knowledge and something that Dr. Metcalf taught us right from the start. It's not what you think. It's not what you believe. It's what you can prove. You know, moving into the world of, of, of quantifying that data. Sure. And, and the beauty of this is we'll probably come back here. And, 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 but that's part of the journey. Yeah. Right? You a, learn. A year from back. now, we might cringe and be embarrassed at what we said. <laughs> that's okay. The, the, year, the year prior. But yeah, she's, she's right. It's not what you can... It's not what you think. It's what you can establish empirically. Hi, listeners. Taking a brief pause from the episode to announce that limited spots are available for the upcoming Leadership Under Fire Thought Leaders Retreat. The team will be hosting the event from February 23rd to the 26th in Brooklyn, New York. The retreat will be focused on exploring current efforts, opportunities, and challenges associated with advancing human and mental performance in a programmatic fashion in high-risk industries. The target audience for the retreat is leaders who are currently managing human performance programs and those who desire to launch human performance programs in their organizations. Visit leadershipunderfire.com and click on the Events tab to register or for more information. Now, back to the episode. And continuing on this thread, what did you learn this year that you didn't know that you didn't know? This one's easy for me. Historically, uh, in the fire service, we thought it was appropriate to staff up during the winter. And the reality is you have to staff up uh, during the heat. Uh, we've seen that with, with the, the stress data and the there's the anecdotal evidence that, that we've had in, in, in high-tempo units. And that one really is, is a fundamental change from the prevailing wisdom that exists in, in the fire service. And if you think now, in, in so much of the country, you're operating in warmer temperatures for longer periods of time. In folks that are – their run totals have really gone through the roof. They're in bunker gear, bunker gear, which is even more uh, enclosed and encapsulated – we know that they're generating extraordinary values, uh, but eventually decision makers are going to have to figure out what to do and how do you handle this. And here's where the point of all the science is, is to provide leaders with information that they can make decisions. And just stands to reason that the better informed they are, well, the better the outcome will be. And they'll make adjustments where needed. But again, to, to, to put that in play, uh, they need to have that understanding. And I often, as a reference, um, I use a slide in some of my presentations of a rear look, a rear view uh, of a firefighter, uh, full bunker gear, 45-minute bottle on, and, and roll-ups. I came on this job when we wore blue jeans. And you look at all of that gear, and all of it is in response to tragedy, 
uh, and with the best of intentions, a phrase that needs to be injected over and over and over right. again. Mm -hmm. We got this with the best of intentions, but never at any point in time were we able to inject that understanding of human factors into the discourse. And so ultimately, and again, it won't happen overnight. You know, there'll be a lot of uh, discussion and, and so forth. But again, it comes back to that central premise, providing decision makers with better information, invariably, we will have better outcomes. So let me think, what did I not know that I did not know going into 2019? So for a number of years now, I've had the good fortune of being involved with the Naval Academy Ethics Program, uh, largely teaching operational ethics uh, through a very reflective lens in light of my experience with the Marine Corps, my time abroad, and uh, being pretty candid, you know, well, things I think I did well, things I I didn't do as well as I would like and things I would certainly like a do-over. Unfortunately, life doesn't afford us that luxury. So the next best thing is to help to pre prepare the emerging, the rising generation of, of leaders. And more recently, I've gotten to go to the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina and West Point and talk about moral fitness in an operational context in light of what we know about the world that we operate in, the uncertainty, the complexity, and the political climate 24-hour news, the, the role that social media plays. And until this year, I looked at ethical decision-making or moral fitness largely in isolation or in somewhat of a vacuum with a belief that we could just largely encourage and train people to do the right thing morally. And the more time we spent preparing them, they would do precisely that under stress. In hindsight, I, I believe that I was missing. I don't know to what extent was just a great appreciation for how, in many instances, how they perform is going to be as much biological as it is moral. And I don't know if I'm doing this justice. I'm like looking at Jim to see if I can. I mean, this is really what Sapolsky Sapolsky sets yes. out to yeah. sets out to explore. Case case in point. Let me let me try to explain it in more practical terms. Case in point, uh, we've all been privy to events where someone might have fled. Right when they should have stayed and fought, mm -hmm. or we've all been in instances guilty of having been observers at a moment when we should have been an active participant. Right, and there's often times though when when our performance or someone in organizations is suboptimal in the sense that they chose to be a, an observer when they should have been a participant, or they fled in an instance where they should have actually fought. Right, that fundamental flight or fight frequently we view that as being a moral failure that we can coach and train and develop and cultivate with a greater appreciation. I mean, and this historically is how the service academies have, have approached moral development, character development and operational context, absent of kind of a conversation or understanding of like what's actually happening to you physiologically, psychologically, biologically in those moments. And I think sometimes we will misdiagnose something or be quick to misdiagnose or diagnose something as being a moral failing when really it's much more involved and, and complicated. And I think that I, I finished the year with a newfound appreciation for something that I've, I've been passionate about, you know, certainly spent a lot of time thinking about in light of my experiences, particularly in the Marine Corps, but even in the fire department. I just feel compelled going forward to, uh, to just be mindful of the fact that moral excellence and fitness doesn't exact, exist within a silo. Sure. And, and, and to amplify what you were talking about, Sapolsky will talk about in some instances in extreme stress or cognitive overload where the prefrontal cortex is coming offline. That's the, the, the decider. 
you know, the part of the brain that tells you to do the harder thing when it's the, the, you know, the, the right thing to do. Again, opening up that, that realm and a deeper understanding can give us a better explanation for situations that you just talked about. Yeah, well, one is it offers explanation, and two is it provides us a tool and a resource to, most importantly and most optimistically, to increase the likelihood in the future that we do the right thing at the right time for, for the, the right reasons in a situation or instance where everything is working against us. It makes this endeavor of trying to help others, right, to do the right thing and, and also to increase the likelihood to do it yourself. It makes it more complex and complicated, but I'm, I'm super optimistic about it. Right. So thanks for breaking that down individually. But before we wrap up, can you both share what you hope that the Leadership Under Fire team will learn in 2020 that we don't know now? Yeah. Jim is like very excited about this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's, it's that geek thing, right? Jim, I think Jim has our, our research, I think, mapped out for the next 10 or 15 years, <laughs> which I'm very thankful for. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity, Jason and I and the team, uh, to start probing uh, circadian rhythms. And when you look at the professions that, that LUF deals with, uh, sleep deprivation, uh, shift changes, shift work has profound impacts upon us. And then to get a better understanding of how this is impacting us, take something as simple as the Uberman lab in, in Stanford now is, is talked about waking up in the morning and simply taking two to five minutes and looking at the morning sky to help reset circadian rhythms. And the point is, uh, the deeper we can probe into this new avenue, who knows what potential uh, gains that we can come across. What about you, Jason? It, it connects back to something Jim, Jim spoke about earlier, and I'll, I'll try to keep my thoughts concise, but I do think that it's absolutely imperative that leaders in the American Fire Service, and it's probably not even necessarily limited to our industry, but it certainly probably impacts us more than any other, gain in the years to come, gain a better understanding of how we're impacted when we, when we can't see, particularly for prolonged periods of time which could be nothing more than a matter of mere minutes <laughs> yeah. at, at, at a fire. And I think that we're, I think I hypothesize that we hypothesize what we're going to find is going to be staggering. It's never been looked at in an empirical or, or scientific context. I think what we find in the process is going to be nothing shy of fascinating. Excellent. And last, but certainly not least, what are you most excited about for LUF in 2020? Just again, to, con to continue the mission, uh, to push forward and to hope that we can impact even more people in, in, a, in a positive and hopefully profound way. Uh, that's really rewarding when you have the opportunity to meet people and, uh, and you impact them in a way that, that helps them. Because ultimately, okay, we're going we're gonna to help make them better at their profession, but we're also going to help make them better as people, right? goes to the old line that, you know, Better people make better performers, and uh, there's self improvement for us. But hopefully, we can we can relay that to the folks uh, who are part of the LUF network. Jason, I'll start with I'm really excited about year two of the podcast, Patty. So I think you've set the, the bar pretty high in the first year, <laughs> and it's you've a team performed. Effort. You've performed very well, which yes. means that there's a expectation on the part of of many of you continue to. Uh, to deliver a really terrific 
podcast with a great group of uh, performance leaders from so many different industries and with so many different perspectives. But what am I really excited about in particular? I'm really excited that we're going to be bringing an optimizing human performance program online, a very comprehensive mental performance program online in Milwaukee. It gets underway late January, pretty robust curriculum, number of thought leaders from different industries that will be contributing. I've been fortunate enough to partner with Milwaukee and they've We've worked to, to select 30 to 40 of their performance leaders of all ranks, responsibilities. So I think it's going to have a compounding effect, right, as we build on what we're doing here in New York. We take it to Milwaukee. Who knows where we go, go next? Do you think about the compounding fact of the research? Like somewhere in the ranks of the Milwaukee Fire Department, there's a Jimmy Mack. They might not even know who he, who he is yet or where he is. They we, don't know what they we don't know. We certainly <laughs> did. They, they don't. We certainly, we certainly didn't. But I would say, I would venture to say there's a Timmy Clark somewhere in Milwaukee. Yeah. There's a, a Jake, a.k.a. Pete Dutton, somewhere in the, in the, in the Milwaukee Fire Department. And there's a, a Jimmy Mack. Um, and, yeah, they don't know what they, what they don't know. <laughs> I'm also excited about Jimmy Mack's reading list coming online in 2000 and, uh, yes. and, and 20. Yeah. And I think much of our listening audience will benefit greatly from having a digital reading list made available to them every few weeks by our own our own senior man, Jimmy Mack. Mm -hmm. So we covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and listening throughout the year. If you've been subscribing, if not, please subscribe. And thank you for tuning into this episode. Gentlemen, thank you for your time and your insight. Thanks, Patty. Thank This concludes our 2019 year in review. We're looking forward to the year ahead, and as you heard, we have some exciting things in the works, including the distribution of the Senior Man's Performance Journal. This newsletter will arrive in inboxes starting Tuesday, January 7, 2020. Each one will feature articles, videos, books, and other media related to human performance, curated by LUF's Human Performance Advisor and FDNY Senior Firefighter, James McNamara. If you haven't subscribed to the Leadership Under Fire newsletters yet, go to leadershipunderfire.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and add your email to sign up. Happy New Year! The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.